Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. This is the the flag the flagship show. I was gonna say <laughs> the flagship. Yeah, I was saying I got my words mixed up there, but then it just and then it ended up just sounding like how my mom says flag. So you know, flag, <laughs> uh, Canadian edition coming yeah, to exactly. you from Ontario. That's right. So uh, I am David Kern. Um, by now, if you've ever listened before, you know that I am joined by. <laughs> Two people you've already heard from, uh, Angelina Sanford and Heidi White. Angelina, Heidi, thank you for joining me. You're welcome, David. Join you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, We're here to talk about chapters five and six of part one of Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. So, what do you say we do that? Great, super (laughs) idea. This sounds like a great plan. I'm in. I'm in. All right. Sounds good. Uh, quickly, just want to let everyone know we have the feed up for our Shakespeare show, The Plays the Thing. The first episode on King Lear uh, will be up today or tomorrow. Well, you'll be listening to this on Friday, so it'll be up by the time you listen to this, I believe. So go hunt that down. Look for the feed in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts. Uh, we also will be posting the first episode on the Cersei Institute podcast network feed, as well as on the general close, you know, this feed as well, just for the first episode. So you know where it is. But then after that, we're going to be just keeping it to the plays, the thing feed, um, just for the, you know, organization purposes. And, you know, so people don't get their feeds uh, crowded and everything with that many shows, it's going to be hard for people to find archives of stuff since you only get a hundred episodes in most of the apps. So, but we'll do the first episode as a reminder that it's out there. And then after that, you'll have to subscribe to the plays, the thing feed also coming soon is going to be our movie podcast. Um, more on that soon. And then also we're going to be having a podcast called the daily poem, which will be up very soon as well. I believe let's throw this out there and hope that it happens. I believe our first episode of that is going to go up next Monday. So that should be like August 20th. So that'll be every weekday. More on that coming soon, including the feed. Um, Wow. A lot of good stuff. Yeah. So check out the place thing. Check out our movie podcast when that comes. Check out the uh, daily poem when that feeds up. Um, But for now, you are on the flagship feed of Close Reads and we are here to talk about (laughs) Crossing to Safety. So chapters five and six. Um, we get a lot of Sid and Charity here. Mm-hmm. Hey, Angelina, how does getting mostly ch- Sid and Charity make you feel about these chapters? <laughs> I just felt like I was like lying down on a couch. We were going to therapy. Like, how does how does it make you feel? Um, well, no, uh, I liked these chapters, and I liked. Uh, I really liked what Larry had to say about memory and how a lot of it is invention and the idea that he's crafting this backstory of them um, from stuff that he's heard and stuff that he's imagined. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea of the way we make a story out of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked the idea even, so that's operating on many levels, right? And Emily, Aunt Emily also, now she was a witness to these things and yet makes an story out of it and makes it into a fairy tale the way she tells it. And I just thought all that was really interesting and delightful. And, and, uh, I, I really liked, I liked both of these chapters. So I, I, I wasn't, I don't know how I feel about it, David, but I enjoyed it. Is that, a, is that an emotion? I don't know. I feel like this is a trick question. <laughs> 
No, I don't. No, I don't actually mean that. <laughs> I trick felt question. angsty, and my daddy issues came out, and <laughs> no, I was no, I, no, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. So I uh, know. I mean, I, I liked I, them. <laughs> so I'm. It is I, one of the things that's it was interesting about it is you. We just leave our main characters for so long, and I'm. In, I'm kind of curious about the effect of that um, on readers, um, because reading isn't like oh. fundamentally about like that's not the only thing about. Um, it's not just about how you feel about stuff, but it does elicit feeling. It I elicits see what you're a saying. response. And so I'm curious if we can kind of identify, does it, did it do anything to us? Do we even notice? Do we care that we leave our two main characters, except in his own imaginative rememberings? Um, we know we're not in the scenes with them. We're with, we're off with Sid and Charity. And I wondered if that had, was, it was in any way. No, it didn't feel abrupt or anything like that. I didn't feel like it broke up the flow. I, I, I like books that deal with the idea of memory and, and then the plot sort of meanders in the way that a memory does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated. I feel like I'm just, I guess I didn't really feel like we lost Larry because Larry is still telling the story and he pops up throughout the chapter to let you know he's still there. Did uh, well, Heidi, you, you jump on this now. Did it have any effect on you emotionally or otherwise? Um, emotionally, no, I, I agree with Angelina that it tells us a lot actually about Larry um, because yes. this is a story within a story and he's the one crafting it, right? Mm -hmm. So as I read this, I kept forgetting that he was making this up. Like, <laughs> right. I just believe this now. This is the story of how Sid and Charity fell in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, as you pointed out last week on the episode, that Larry gives himself away so much <laughs> in this book. And yeah. I see this here, even with the Aunt Emily, you brought that up, Angelina, which is true. She does craft this into a fairy tale. Or does she? Because this is Larry's perception, right? He uses Aunt Emily as a plot device to foreshadow these issues between um, Sid and Charity, which of course goes to the way he feels about their friendship, right? So I was fascinated by the way Larry gives himself away in these chapters. What do you mean by gives himself away exactly? I think I mean the emphasis on, particularly in chapter six, is on... At, uh, again, particularly towards the end, there's so much about Charity and Aunt Emily's management of this relationship, right? So Aunt Emily's watching everything. She's making judgments on everything, which of course are Larry's judgments mm -hmm. of the story he's writing him, crafting himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that particularly stood out on me especially at the end of chapter six, when Charity and Sid are having this imaginary conflict over dinner about Sid's poetry. Yeah. So, yeah, well, okay, so that gets us to chapter six. And did, okay, let me ask this quickly. Did either of you feel the absence of Sally? I did not know. In chapter five, yes, I feel like we know the least about Sally out of anybody so far. 
Okay. Well, well about, yes, but that's why I didn't feel her absence. Like I, it's almost oh, like I guess point. my answer to the question is I've not yet felt her presence. Yeah, that's a that's a better answer. I like that. Yeah, no, I'm not like that was not a leading question whatsoever. It's more like I, she's I, not, like I, there she's was not some, there. Why is that the she's right? Not, so there was some you know, good, good points raised, um, on the Facebook page about these chapters. And I found myself responding in my head to those questions, um, mm. the same way I did last week, which is, I just don't have enough time yet. And it's not, I don't have enough time with these people. I don't feel like I know them. I'm still just getting to know them. I'm not ready to draw a conclusion on anybody. And I definitely don't feel like I know Sally. We see Sally as Sid's, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, as, as, you know, Larry's significant other. And we see Sally as Charity's friend, but I don't know that we've seen Sally yet. I'm, I'm still just waiting for this story to continue to unfold. Right. Heidi, were you, you going to say something? No, no. I'm, you, I'm just thinking about that. Do you, yeah. And so that makes me, you know, that's like one of the marks of, uh, uh, I guess a, a great book. You can tell a book's really good at, because you can tell so early that it's a book that's going to, um, it's going to reward rereading because uh, you know, yeah. you're at, you were, we're five, six chapters in, we're 95 pages in, we're a third of the way, whatever it is. And we're already recognizing things like, I don't know her yet, but I bet if I reread it again, I'm going to like, it's going to bring this particular thing, part of it into focus. Absolutely. Not, not every book yes. can you, can you say that about as you're reading it? Like you might get to the end and be like, okay, I really want to reread that. But this is one of those books where, you know, we're a third of the way in and we're already recognizing that. The well, back. there's so mm -hmm. many little subtle things at play, so many subtle dynamics, right. That I don't know exactly what to conclude of them because I don't yet know who they are. So you're right. I feel like I could go to the end and then come back and be like, oh, that's what Sally meant. And that's what Charity was hinting about. Right. You know? Right. Right. You know, last week we were talking about characters we liked or even just in the first couple of chapters. Um, I think maybe, I don't remember why that came up because it's been a week now, but I mentioned how <laughs> Sally might be my favorite character. So right. for me, as much as I enjoy the, I was focusing a lot on like the craftsmanship of how Stegner was, you know, creating these two chapters for me, the absence, I really felt the absence of Sally a lot in this ah, chapter. Interesting. And so I was, that's what got me thinking about, like, I was kind of, I enjoy the chapters. I enjoy the interactions of charity and Sid and all that, but, and I enjoy the, the craftsmanship, but then I'm also thinking, well, where's Sally? And like, I'd like right. to more, more of Sally here. So it got me thinking about how, as you're reading a book like this, there's the, you know, like when we're studying literature, certainly there's a degree to which our emotions and the way we feel about things are not really particularly relevant to the study of it. Right. But the experience of reading literature still certainly plays on our emotions, even if we don't like, because there's just no way it can't. Right. Like we're, right. There, we're, there's something we're instinctively responding to things throughout, whether it's, you know, trying to, whether we're, whether we're feeling like a sense of some question we need answered or something like that, or some mm -hmm. sense of this plot needs to get resolved, or we fear for a character or something like that. It's playing on all those instincts. And so I was thinking about that. That's why I asked that question of, about feelings. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not something we talk about all the time on the show or very, really, very often at all. But in that sense, it's a valuable thing to be at least we recognize and can kind of name our own readings of something, our own experience with something. And I think there's some value in that. That's well, fun. I agree, David, and particularly in character driven novels like this, mm -hmm. in which the plot is in, in some ways secondary to 
uh, the plot itself, what's happening in there is created by the characters themselves, right? And so in this particular novel, the the emotional response to the characters matters a lot. In fact, there were people on the Facebook page saying, I don't like Charity and Sid or things like that. And, and yeah, that's that perfectly valid in a character-driven novel. That's that's part yeah. of the experience of reading it. Th- this week, I have really found my, and I, this has not been true, but we've read other books that I have done the podcast on through a first read. But this book, I have found myself all week thinking, I wish this wasn't my first read. Like, I feel mm. like I'm not able to say the things that I would say because I don't know how it's going to go. Right. We're not catching the foreshadowing, right? I've been sitting, as I'm sitting here reading, I'm thinking, I know that that's got to be significant, but I don't know why yet. Yes. And the, the stuff that indicates foreshadowing, I keep thinking, this could go one of two ways and I don't right. know, I don't know which way. Right. And no. so, I Can mean, I... I was a little bit dreading this episode, to be honest. I, I was literally texting my friend going, I got, I got nothing to say, except I don't know. Let's wait and see. Like, can I drag that out for an hour? I don't know. <laughs> well, right. Okay. So can I, 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 okay. This is kind of, this is where I, having some power on the show. <laughs> Let be, it be, go to your head. No, 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 no. <laughs> It can be cruel, though. Oh, no. no. Don't I, make us make predictions. No, 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 I'm no, no, going to no, say, no. I don't know. Wait and see. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's not what I mean. Okay, so I think if I... Okay, I'm I'm going to see if I can express this in, in a way that's actually true. I think what often happens is people can, can listen along with us or they can read a book by some scholar on something um, or someone who's read a book a lot of times and they can hear us talking about it. And then we're making these observations or Angelina's doing some like crazy, um, not crazy and like strange, but just like some like really deep read. Right. Um, I, I didn't mean that like insane. I mean, like, like, you know, like some crazy, cool, like, you know, deep reader. There you go. Add and, cool to it. Um, that worked. That makes everything better. But what, what I really meant is, you know, it's a reading that no, that people don't recognize until they've read the whole story. Right. So it feels crazy if you haven't read the whole thing um, or it feels out of nowhere or like Heidi, you can be saying something about some character and how it, and it, basically what you're playing on is how it all wraps up or you're making observations about the craft, but we can do that because we have this certain level of knowledge about a book and they're sitting there reading it and they're thinking, I don't see any of that. Right. And so there's like this degree to which, um, they can be people. So we get readers who, you know, I get readers who write and write us and they'll say, you know, I can never do any of that. And while it's true that like Angelina and Heidi and, you know, people have a certain level of expertise and they know what to look for and the questions to ask. And there's things that they're schooled in. It's also a little bit unfair for us to come on here and talk about books we've read multiple times when you've read, most of the listeners have maybe only read a book. This is the first time they're reading. And so it's a very different kind of a reading experience. So I wanted to read a book that you guys never read before. Because, this is the episode where we get to fumble around and make everyone no, feel better. <laughs> no, because what I think you guys can still do is like, what you can do is you can still show what that question asking looks like and that there are certain things that are recurring in books. And as you're reading along, you can be identifying, you can be seeing the echoes as they're coming, even if you don't know what they all mean in the end. Is that what, does that make sense? Yeah, that no, makes a lot of sense. sense. I think so we're going to have a very interesting listeners. Q&A, episode, <laughs> right? Like I, I feel that about myself. Like once I get to the end, then I'm going to want to rethink my way through the whole book. So <laughs> yeah. it ought to be a very interesting Q&A episode. 
So for well, Graham I and I, we have something to say other than I'm going to wait and see. <laughs> well, okay. So for Graham and I, we've read this book. We basically know what's going to happen, which frankly isn't much. Um, and it's a character driven book, right? So, I mean, I'm being facetious, but still. right. Right. But, um, it's not like in the end, they're going to start flying airplanes over, you know, Berlin and world war two. And it's going to lead to this, you know, right. it's not going to be turned into the movie. That's the Pearl Harbor movie. Um, <laughs> We're going to get to the end. It's going to be fight club. The whole thing is in yeah. Larry's mind. <laughs> Sid exactly, and Charity yeah. don't even exist. It's momentum. <laughs> I could totally make a case for that. I mean, so far their backstory only exists in his mind. Okay. Here comes the crazy analysis. Yeah, exactly. Right. But, but okay. So, but you guys, like I, I'd love for you guys to be able to take this and say, I don't know what's going to happen, but these are the things that I'm seeing. These are the right. recurring things that I'm seeing. And these are the questions that I have. And these are the things that I'm interested in seeing. And this is the, this is the stuff that I'm seeing him doing as we're reading because you know, that's frankly, that's most of our reading life, right? Is figuring things out as they're happening. I mean, unless you're right, going back and writing a book on how to read any story, in which case right. studying a particular works very deeply, right, Angelina? <laughs> that's so, but the that, idea. But that's a very different sort of thing. And that's a very sort of, prof- in some ways, professional approach, right? I don't right. mean that in mm-hmm. a negative sense. But so I guess I'm curious to see what are some things that you guys are seeing as first time readers that you're seeing echoes of that, that are causing certain questions to be asked? that are causing you to ask certain questions of the book and of the characters. And, um, and what are the habits of reading that you have that you're bringing to the story? Okay. So I think I would say this, first of all, because as you were talking, this is the question that came to my mind. Um, it feels deliberate Mm -hmm. and well-crafted as opposed to sometimes we read books and we're like, what is going on? This doesn't make sense. And you get to the end and it never makes sense. Right. They never brought it together. So sometimes it's it's a, it's a lack of craft, right? And the, yeah, the author right. has just lost control of this narrative and who knows what's going on and the characters are not developed and everything's confusing and that's a flaw. But I definitely have the sense in this book that it is masterfully crafted. He is in control of all of this. He is going somewhere with it. He wants it to unfold patiently and it's very deliberate. So I would say the first thing that I'm seeing is is quality. This is This is well-crafted and he wants me to be patient. I fully expect that he is going to answer all of these questions in his own time. And okay, let me, I have two, well, when you say all of these questions, what do you mean? What are the questions that you have? Oh, well, like, for example, I think a lot of us are wondering about this friendship between these two Uh couples, right? Is it healthy and good? Is it as it appears to be? Um, Is Charity just a giving, loving person who's taken two people under her wing who, and and that's a good, and and that's a good thing. And I think we've all had experiences like that where we've been desperate for someone to take us under their wings. But then probably a lot of us have also experienced the flip side of that, where maybe it's controlling and manipulative and hasn't been healthy or maybe it started out good and then kind of slid over and then Um, the power went to their head exactly uh and so those are those are all really good questions to ask what is the nature of this friendship and a lot of it Mm -hmm. has to do with perspective because again we're seeing from larry's perspective and we just don't know enough yet but i i don't think all right i'll put it to you that i will make a prediction i predict that i will not get to the end of this novel and be like well, I still don't know if this is a real friendship or not. Right. I it's going to, I think it will be, it will be revealed and perhaps it will even be revealed why he withheld this for so long. Mm. Huh. Mm. So I, what, well, uh, Heidi, you go ahead and say what you're going to say now. Sure. So 
again, because of the way I read, I really love character driven novels a lot. Um, what do you mean the way you read? When I read, I read, and I'm, I'm, I said it that way because of what Angelina said last time, which was she doesn't tend to tell me if I'm paraphrasing you correctly, Angelina, that you do tend to think more about, uh, motifs, patterns, connections, uh, archetypes, those kinds of things in, in stories. Am I saying that oh, correctly? No, that's absolutely true. Yes. I do the, the read big universal things is what interests me. Sure. And I read characters. I, I, I want to know what motivates them. I want to know why they're doing what they're doing. And I read every work of literature as its own little universe. I love to see how they connect with others, but I accept it on its own terms. So in this, a, go ahead. Well, I have a metaphor for what you guys are talking about. Okay. Like the difference is if, if there's a difference there, maybe it's a subtle difference, but there's this thing in film studies. Um, and I've been thinking about this a lot since I was in college, actually, about how we experience art. And so, you know how in a movie you'll have like music, for example, that's me- it's outside the scene, right? It's meant to, um, it's meant to tell you sort of how to feel about the scene, right? Oh, often, right. often. So the action scene, you get this like, very aggressive, you know, it's meant to, it's meant to create, help create drama, the romantic scene, you get the swelling score, it's that sort of thing. Right. Um, if I'm not mistaken, if my memory is working right, that is called, um, non-diegetic sound, but then you've got diegetic sound and that's music that might be, that might be actually a part of the scene. Mm -hmm. Huh? It's the, it's the music that is, it's within the scene. It could be a, it could be something as obvious as someone performing in the scene. Um, huh. It could be something like um, the, it could be an orchestra at a background like in Casablanca or something like that. So the, so you, one is meant to tell you about, uh, it's meant to kind of be a thematic notifier. And then the other kind of music is so, sort of meant to be a, it's, supposed to, it's meant to be lived in as part of the scene. And it seems huh. like what you're talking about, Heidi, is kind of this idea of it's the part that's lived in the scene. And then Angelina, what you're referring to, Angelina kind of thinking about the themes and all that is like, it's that thematic notifying music. And they're mm-hmm. both very purposeful. They're used in very specific ways, but it, and it helped, but, but when a director puts those different kinds of music, music into a film, he is helping us experience it in two very different ways. Sometimes those things are happening Some well, rarely at the same time, but um, there are very specific choices that are being made there. And that's that metaphor has is kind of how I think about the two different kinds of reading that you're mm-hmm, talking about. Mm-hmm. Huh. And I really I would, like I that. Definitely like to, to add to that, just in case there's any confusion for our, our listeners. Those two ways of reading are not in opposition to one another. It's not that one's right and one's wrong. They're both, they're both happening. And we mm-hmm. benefit yeah. both yeah. from looking at the big universal sweeping patterns and, and the individual things as well. And it's not, I mean, it's certainly not um, uncommon for people to be drawn to one type of reading over another, just because of the way our, our minds might work, but, but they're certainly both right. happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I don't yep. think that I ignore the particular, but it's not, it's definitely not the first thing I, I hope I don't ignore it, but I don't, it's not the first <laughs> yeah. thing I notice. Well, we have our, we each have sort of like inclinations, right? The things that whether by training or by personality, or whatever right. things that we tend to to notice first. So right. I, mean, sports. I was I was just talking to this week to somebody about how I read and I was saying how I, I skip description. I mean I will huh. confess this on the air for the other <laughs> listeners who do skip it. I find it uh, 
it distracts from my imagination. Um, you know, um, Jane Austen is sometimes criticized. You should she like Shakespeare describe- then. No, it's true. That's exactly why. And that's also why I like Jane Austen. She's criticized that she doesn't give description, that her characters don't have bodies and all that. And yet I feel like I can see them because I can imagine this person on the basis of how they act and how they talk and the way that they are. And so I I prefer to get my sense of the scene from the way the characters are behaving and speaking. Um, So it is extremely difficult for me to focus on long descriptive passages because I find Moby Dick. I'm just like, oh, can we just skip? Oh, and all the Victorian novels I read, I'm, I skip big chunks of it. I'm like, just get back to the dialogue. So if you're like that, you can know that a professional reader also reads like that. Unless it's an archetypal description, then I get excited and I'm writing a million notes about what everything symbolizes in it. But um, like just to tell me the color of the lake, I don't need to know that. Just say it's a lake. I will take it from here. <laughs> like <that just laughs> Could not be less interested in it. <laughs> Any of that. Tim says, I think like a playwright. So there you go. That, that. Well, okay. Go finish your thought. We got to come back to that. That's the, um, you got to tell us more about this. Um, Heidi, finish your thought. Sure. So, well, it, I, I do just want to add, that's why we read in community, right? Because I learned so much from Angelina reminding me to see these big patterns and the connections between works of literature. I learned so much from you, David, about craft and about, you know, pay attention to the subordinate clauses. And I, I think that stuff is, that helps me be a better reader. But one thing that I do naturally well is pay attention to characters. And, and so in this book, I, I am noticing in these first chapters, uh, all of the management by strong women and Larry's very careful, um, the careful way in which he speaks about that, as if he's afraid to give away too much of his own opinion about that. About, yeah, Aunt, about yes, exactly. About Aunt Emily and about charity specifically. I see his silence about Sally at this point as protectiveness of her. I don't know if that's hmm. true or not, hmm. but I, he isn't describing her in the same way. Uh, another thing I noticed is how everything connects with Sid, right? There's a lot of exploration of Sid's relationships at this point, his relationship with charity, uh, his relationship with Larry, his relationship with his father, and then even his relationship with Sally. I'm noticing a lot of little, little times in which Sid kind of sweeps her away. The ice skating scene. (laughs) Yes. The ice skating scene, the way that he, uh, he, he tells her to keep on her robe, which I think is a fairly erotic thing to say to someone else's wife, keep on that robe. I want to show you off to Aunt Emily, things like that, that are, and, and, and the continued reference to Sally's beauty. So I, I am noticing these little things and wondering how they're going to come back around. And, and speaking of that, so, so this, this is, this is the way an archetypal reader would read the character. So this is interesting how this is all going to play together. What I notice is how many times Sid is described as two Sids. Yes. Dual nature of Sid. That's mm-hmm. on my list. Yes. So two Sid over and over. It's, it's office Sid and it's home Sid. It's tan mm-hmm. golf Sid and it's academic Sid. Demigod Sid. Yes. And so this plays into this idea that we're talking about at the beginning of we don't yet know who these people are and we can read them one of two ways and you got to get to the end to know and this is why i think it's deliberate is because of things where he's he's very intentionally telling us there are two sids there are two sids there are two yep yeah sorry i'm just agreeing keep going (laughs) 
No, yeah. Well, okay, yes. I didn't, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean that to be a no, cut. I was a affirmation. No, that's that's it. I'm I'm fascinated, you know, in doubling. This is huge in literature. That's one of my pet things, the doubling. And uh, I so I love the idea that the character, he he's his own double, and and who is he? Yes. This is a really interesting, and and he'll like in. So if you're just looking at how how Stegner makes that represents that in the in the action of the the stories. Sid regularly shifts his own persona in a, in a single scene, mm-hmm. and he and he recognizes mm-hmm. it within himself. So he'll go from being very serious to all of a sudden laughing, like when they're on the picnic, right? He and he Sid and Larry are chatting, and there's this very serious conversation. But then the champagne comes out, and all of a sudden it talks about how Larry becomes uncomfortable about how boisterous Sid becomes all of a sudden. Or you have mm-hmm. the the conversation at. Uh, Charity's home, where her, where her, where his father makes a comment, and then he makes a joke and laughs very boisterously, and everybody notices. And it, because of how abruptly he changes his persona in that mm-hmm, moment, mm-hmm. so that so is again, representative for, of that dual that duality. Yes, exactly. So for for us as the reader, then we ha- we try to figure out what that means. Like it could be sinister. It could be Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, right? Or it could just be he doesn't really know who he is. Right. And so it, in different scenarios, he's. A different person. Can you can you clarify your pronouns? Oh, that Sid doesn't know who he is. The Sid doesn't know who Sid is. Yes, right. could also he be that Larry know doesn't know who's, who. That is also true too. Own... It could be a matter of interpretation, and, and right. it could be that what what Larry's trying to get get us to to sense or or even feel in a way is that at that point in their lives, he didn't know. And so he, at this point in his story, he wants us to not yes, be able to fully understand yes, who he exactly. Was. So what I mean when I say Sid doesn't know who Sid is is more like he's he's got to grow up. Not like it's sin. We, we're all we all of us going through that process, right? Um, and so like he doesn't know who he is professionally. That came up in these chapters. Am I a poet? Am I a teacher? Um, this is what my dad wants. This is what my wife wants. I mean, that's the conversation of somebody who doesn't really know what he wants, right? Yeah, yeah. This is what is expected of me. And um, so I, I actually, I don't suspect anything sinister about Sid. I, I just expect he's going to have to grow up and figure out who he is and what he wants. Hmm. Heidi, you talked, you talked about the, the idea of this, like um, what a pro, what is sort of bordering on intimacy mm-hmm. between with between Sally where like between Sally and Sid in some ways and the ways that um Larry describes Sally and places uh-huh. her in the story um do you do you do you feel like that is um like he's have he's a he's okay with it um, like like for example the ice skating scene right. do, you, do you what how did you sense that what was your sense of Larry's um, feeling about that? Right. He doesn't say, I think, I, I assume, here's an as- assumption that I'm making based on the fact that I don't know how the story plays out, that he is carefully not saying what he thinks about it. I, I'm looking at the at that passage right now. It's on page 59. Uh um, hold on. Meantime, I am limping around on the insides of my ankles. I was just going to bring when this up. Yep. <laughs> when I try to help Sally get started, I slide out from under myself and pull her down in a soft huddle on top of me. Obviously, she needs better instruction than mine. That's underlined a bunch of times in <laughs> yeah, my book. Yeah, that was a very interesting comment. Right. 
Sid, observing, glides in, lifts her up with encouraging words, takes her left hand in his right, lays his left arm around her shoulders, fits her right arm around his waist. Tentative and floundering, this this passive voice, I think, is mesmerizing to me. She is skated away with. Mm-hmm. Begins to feel the rhythm, begins to make cautious strokes. Yeah, the writing and there, there even changes yes. the rhythm of the changes the rhythm of the paragraph itself. Mm-hmm. I completely Mirroring. agree. I just think this is. I mean, it's brilliantly written, but it is. I, I just think thematically, it's got to be important. Oh, and this last sentence, yes. you got to read that. I mean, come on. Yes. There you, they you, go. You can hear the orchestra cue. I know. There they go in increasingly confident arcs out away from the rougher inshore ice and onto the open lake. Watching and applauding, I pay insufficient attention to my own peril. And bump, I go out from under myself again and bruise my tailbone on the ice. Now, I can't imagine that they have a close and intimate relationship still in their older age, which we do learn from chapter one, mm-hmm. if there is an affair going on. I, I just can't imagine a friendship surviving that. <laughs> however, yes. So the yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm gonna however, thought, dot but, dot dot. Yes, I guess uh, that's my thought. No, I agree with you, and I think that's part of why the narrative structure is so interesting because he's taking that question away from us. Does something happen? Does, is this going to explode and they're all going to be lifelong enemies? We already know that's not true. Whatever right. happens is not of 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 that nature. Um, y- you know, in the in the earlier chapters. Larry so badly wants to be entered into this world. And Sally is a way for him to be entered into this world. Yes. He wants to show her off. And so at least initially, I think he's very excited uh, about the attention she's, she's getting because it's reflection of him, but you know, obviously this particular one is not, is a reflection of his insufficiency. So that's different. And I also, if you skip down two paragraphs, three paragraphs to the last sentence, I underlined Mm. that too. I see them there and think how in these two women, four hearts are beating and it awes me. So on one level, this is that there's children, (laughs) but the four hearts are also the four hearts of the the couple. Right. uh, Beating inside the two women. So that was, that was, that was another one of those sentences, like, which way am I supposed to read this? Yeah. Right. The life of the relationship uh, and each of their two relationships and then the future of their relationships because of their children are all kind of interconnected and locked together. Yes. And bound up in the women. Yep. Mm -hmm. One thing I think worth looking out for is the way he, shall we say, sort of plays with, with how he describes various forms of intimacy. So like, you'll see even thinking of chapter five, when he talks about like the marital intimacy of between him and Sally, it's very Mm -hmm. like, he doesn't really, it's just kind of, he, he references it in some ways. It's in a list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very like, it's, it's almost like it's there, but um, he doesn't draw attention to it. And he's, he's not going to play it out, at least right now. And then you get um, these other, like, but then he's very extravagant in the way he, he talks about their four person, like their, their um, picnic and their, remember their hug from the last reading. Um, he's very, poetic in the way he approaches those that kind of intimacy but he's much more protective and he's a little more sly um he's more secretive about the intimacy between him and sally which is both probably a, that's probably appropriate right um, right but it's also telling us a lot about um about him and about their relationship and gives us some um it, it 
it, there's a focus there that's a little different, right? Like we're not as we're not spending as much time thinking about their marriage right now. Right. This it, isn't Sally and, and his uh, love love story, right? It's not. This is not that kind. It's not that kind of love story. Not right now. Right. You know, I also thought. So you know, but you it's have that. Still there. It's paragraph. still there, though. It is. Yes, it is there. It is. Yes, it is definitely there. Um, because but it's, well, can I just say one more thing about that before you? No, absolutely. Go. Go. So. Um, I'm just so pleased that we're finding something to talk about. <laughs> um, I'm trying to find, oh, shoot, where is this? Okay, so at the end of four, there's the thing about um, their four-ply hug, right? Um, mm-hmm. Oh, so that means that chapter and yeah. chapter five both ended with the four together. Yeah, exactly, yes. yeah. But then um, he there's like little references to where he's, speci- okay, so at the very beginning of chapter five is like the next day, right? Or it's like another memory. Um, very recently after the end of chapter four. And it's, as you said, this, he gives a list here of the things that they're, you know, doing together. Um, grading papers. She's trying to get through the book still. It's a Saturday, not quite noon. Um, there's still, it's the next day, right? So they're still wearing those romantic burnouses too stimulated to sleep. We talked, we made love, we talked some more. Finally, we wore out. Now it's the next day. So like in one sense, you can read that as like, there's a, that's like a very intimate sentence, right? And yes. he draws, he specifically talks about, it. like, he doesn't just sort of say, you know, we spent some time together. Like he very specifically says that. So he wants it to be there, but like you can read it in a way that you could easily gloss over it. So it's, it's really interesting to me that he managed to write a sentence that is like extremely intimate and even sensual in some ways, but like we almost can gloss over it. Like I, how he, he, how he does that is really mesmerizing to me. And this right. is what's so interesting about that. Next paragraph, they're having a conversation about how you say more than you mean to say in the yeah, sentences exactly. that you give. Yeah. I mean, this, yes. I mean, that's fabulous, right? He's reading the essays to her. Listen to this. The top of the hill is round and smooth, worn down by centuries of eroticism. <laughs> Pulling my leg or is this one for Dave Stone's boner collection? I suppose she means erosion. I suppose she does, but yearning speaks between the lines, right? I mean, this it's like that headline, pin is mightier than sword, says Wilson. That left out the slug between pin and is. Inadvertence is the truest humor. So we've got all of this. I mean, we've been talking about the misdirect and we don't really know what's happening and this seems suggestive and maybe it is and maybe it isn't. And then like he brings that to the forefront. Sometimes it, the things you accidentally say, that's what's true. Right. And, but, and in a way, he, this conversation, like many of the conversations in this book, sort of, it's so easy to just sort of gloss over them because there's like a pace and an energy to them that feels so normal. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like a scene in a movie or a play. Like it's so th- sort of playwrighty or it's just so natural that like you don't almost you could easily just gloss over this and continue on. Right. Because it, he's, he's so good at it, but it's also so rich and there's so much going on there. And then he says specifically, I mean, when an author says some, a line like, but yearning speaks between the lines, it's probably <laughs> worth paying attention to. Exactly. And, and again, I mean, look, and if all we did was focus this on, on this doubling idea, then right here, we've got the double meaning of words and sentences and, and the accidental meaning is the true meaning. And, there's right. a lot of stuff. So, so again, this goes back to what we were your your original question. What what are the questions we should be asking as we read this book? And and one is is this deliberate? This inability to determine the nature of these characters is it deliberate? Yes, these are all examples of how we know it's deliberate because he keeps saying two double meaning shadow. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. What's yeah. real and what's in reflection? What's yep. uh, 
So it's very, very deliberate. So I had cut Heidi off and I want to give, oh. go back to you there in a second, Heidi, because I, I, I think I cut you off. But no, I want to just good. throw out my, my, I have a theory about this. Oh, this let's line, hear it. So this line about yearning speaks between the lines <laughs> and it talks about how it's coming back in broken scenes. My theory is that if you want to look for the yearning that's between the lines in the story, you have to look between the broken scenes. Between the broken scenes. Because the broken huh. scenes are these memories that are probably not right. actually fully real. And so you have to figure out what the variations and the themes in these in these different stories that he's telling. And right. like, what are the lines, like when you're putting a puzzle together, the meaning is where those lines of all those broken pieces come together. So that's right. something that, I like that this is a theory I'm exploring this time when I read it. So it's just- No, I think that sounds really good. And especially he's playing with time a lot. Um, so that when chapter five started, I was not sure where we were in the chronology of the story. Right. Because he starts it off saying, Madison, it comes back in broken scenes. And then he describes this intimate evening. And then he says, it's the next day. And that was, that's when I knew for sure where I was in the story. I, I, so I always laugh when I read like, the reason I brought that kind of like the different kinds of intimacy is he's, he's so like wrapped up in how, in like this intimate, like these friendships and stuff like that. And it's this intimate evening. And then like the next day it's like, it's like actually intimate, but he barely has time for talking about it. Right. He just kind of moves you know, on from it. I find that really fascinating. And in a way, I think he is protecting Sally. How do you talk I agree. about that? Well, and I, I was just about to point that out. The nothing in what you just said, David, I think is true that this little conversation that they have about eroticism and erosion and the yearning speak, like it's hilarious, A, eh? and it's revealing about the story and maybe about the characters, but we don't exactly know how yet, but it is, it reveals nothing about Sally. It's, I mean, even the way he's describing her responses, she's just the vessel of what he's saying, right? She's mirroring or repeating back to him what he's saying. It doesn't tell, and maybe that tells us as much about her as he wants us to know, or maybe that's just the full extent of her character, but I doubt it. I disagree only in the extent that I don't think that the line, I suppose she means erosion, doesn't say anything about her. How so? Because she's I, protecting or defending the student? I think, yeah, I think she's being defensive of the student. She's saying sure. don't make fun of her. I think she's, I think she's, um, she can be playful and serious at the same time in those right. two little lines. Um, like oh, I think, especially in the next one. Is it now? Is it I now? Thought, I thought that was very, like, I was like, good for you. Yeah, I know. Well, she's getting what she's getting. Like, what she's getting. <laughs> oh, I read it at it is now. So it is, is it now? And that's a little bit more sassy. It is yeah. sassy. Is it now? I thought it was, it is now. Like, so yeah. never mind what I just said. I don't agree <laughs> no. with myself anymore. <laughs> that well, changes everything. Just those right. two words. That's why you read a book right. twice. That's right. That's right. Close reads. <laughs> but, but so I, but, um, but uh, you mentioned, so the conversation is, but it's also the kind of conversation, like he's not having that conversation with charity and she's not having that conversation with the city. Right. Like it's still, that issue of intimacy. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're kind of, the scenes between the two of them are, are much shorter and they're much like. Right. In, There's uh, a lot of restraint in, in the, the way he speaks about her and to what he tells us about her. Yeah. The, it's the, it's in between these big stories about Sally, about the four of them are the, these little moments between he and her. Right. Mm -hmm. And I the think too, in between we the need lines. to remember that yearning can mean a lot of different things. Like, so it can mean romantic, but it can mean so many other things. Yep. And, and Larry clearly has a lot of yearnings for fame, for um, 
right. honor and glory. And he wants to be accepted into this academic world. I mean, we can't forget the significance of the fact that he's in a temporary part-time position and he doesn't. Yeah. So he, he's yearning to be really part of this world. And that comes up several times where he's like, I don't know that I'll be back next year. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. And uh, so I, I think the fact that this entire so chapter five starts with the end of chapter four, the intimate hug, and what that obviously means to him, and it ends with the four heartbeats, and in between is is an actual intimate moment between the married couple. But the yearning between the lines is probably you know the friendship and a father figure and a mentor and somebody who can lead him into this world, and there's a lot of yearning. Right? There's a lot of in between the a lines lot. too, and then of course in chapter six, the whole chapter is about various yearnings, right? Yes. It's about the charity and Sid's yearning for each other, about um, their yearning for a life together, about charity learning for yearning for um, doing something, changing the world, and his yearning to be a poet, and then their mother's her mother's yearning to make sure that they're protected, and her father's yearning to be alone, <laughs> um, right? In a book with in her in a room with a book, um, the yearning to get rid of the to make to protect the land. That's that's comforts yearning. I, I, the whole chapter is about yearning. Yes, and what we is. see in chapter six, we haven't brought this up yet, but Charity's father is completely absent. Yeah. So you have four fatherless people in this book. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. He d- he wouldn't like being interrupted to find out his daughter's getting married. Right. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Yeah. Just yeah. let him go either in his guest house or his room where he can have his detective novel. Like it just <laughs> reminds me of like these great uncles I had. You know, like I'm watching 60 Minutes and then Lawrence Welk and y'all kids go outside. Like you know, right. Like, this is my evening is set. Please stop bothering me with your being alive. Right. This is a long chapter too. Very long. It's 34 pages long. So there's, but they, he wants us to know this story in this chapter. It's, it's a, it's a story within a story, right? It so needs how, to be its own thing. How much do you think we should actually trust? I brought this up last week and, but I mean, he says recollection I have found is usually about ha- is about half invention and half most of the stories that he's telling are like, I imagined it this way. And then she yep. goes, he tells it in the present tense as if he's sort of imagining it happening. Not, he's not telling it as if it's a history of what happened. And he's kind of open about that both. He even says, this is how I think it, it should have happened. I'm, I'm going to tell you the conversation I think they should have had. Um, yeah, exactly. Which I loved. Okay. So, so, all right. So the question is how much of this should we take? So I will give the metaphorical answer. Um, which is that he invented a backstory that explains what he sees now as yes. the dynamic between them. And so in that, I think we can trust. I think we can trust the dynamic he presents where she's, she is definitely the directing force in his life. And right. This is, Ch- this Char- is charity in his life. Yeah. Charity yeah. is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So he, yeah, yeah, I agree. So he's inventing a he's inventing a narrative for the way he sees and understands them. Yes, right. Yes, and that, a lot of this it. was it's an origin right, and, story. And it is mm-hmm. an origin story, and it explains the conversation he just had in the previous chapter about Sid saying Charity doesn't want me to write poetry. Right. Yeah. Right. That right. there's like there's a little bit of a tiny bit of craft that is kind of underrated the way he's able to thread these stories together in the, the appropriate order in a way that creates questions and then answers them hmm. but then presents another question uh, you know he's not um he's very conscious and careful about and clever in some ways about the way he's taking these little anecdotes and, and putting them together because you could have he could have in, in in really in really he could have put those in any order right 
You could put right. these anywhere in the book, but he puts them together in a way that creates a question that then gets answered. Right. Which again goes to your point about how much it tells us about Larry himself. We don't know Larry because he's talking about himself. We know him because he reveals himself throughout the course of the telling of this story. Who do you think is the protagonist of this story? I was thinking about that. Good question. And who's the, who's the character that we like? Uh, root root for but know the best and all that sort of thing well naturally we're drawn to a first person narrator but Mm -hmm. i almost feel like my answer is again i don't know enough right yes so i I would say the relationship the friendship is right now Mm -hmm. to me the friendship is the protagonist like we're we're seeing it unfold go ahead angelina i i think i think we also are seeing the difference between a storyteller and a poet this is a conversation I'm having in my real life right now. So it was really interesting to see this unfold in, <laughs> in this chapter. Um, yes, with myself. No, <laughs> with a poet. Thank you. But One uh, of you is the poet and one of you is the storyteller. I'm the storyteller in this. Um, so I'm, I'm very, he's very precise and sparse with his words. Whereas, uh, as we all know, I am not. Um, <laughs> I'm like a volcano of words and just pick what happens to rain down on you. But um, so I found that conversation really interesting. And the idea that, of course, Larry sees the world and understands the world via the stories that he crafts about it. And, and so, yes, Larry's character is being revealed through the stories. And this is how he makes sense of the world. And uh, I actually forgot the final point I was going to make there. But there you go. It's just that that's Sid. So Sid is a poet, um, and and um, and Larry's a storyteller, and so there, you, you're seeing that dynamic. Two different ways of of looking at the world. Hmm. You just made me realize too something that I think I knew, but I don't think that I uh, have been have put a finger like named. But one of the things you were talking about the duality, all the doubles, all the different relationships and stuff, and we talked a lot about the two marriages, and we talked about the four of them together. But then there's also you know, uh, this is probably just completely obvious, but there's also Sid and Larry and there's Sid and Mm -hmm. Sally and there's Larry and Charity and there's Charity and Sally. And then there's these children involved. And so there's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just the two couples. It's, and there's a different, each of them have a different sort of intimacy. Right. But an intimacy nonetheless. And it's like, they're constantly working out what that intimacy, like what the, what the rules of each of those intimate worlds should look like. Right. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. And, uh, I don't keep wanting to say Tim, Larry and Sid are friends, but also colleagues. So you also have, you know, professional relationships versus personal relationships. And, uh, And which I think is a really important point. So I want to hear your and, but I think that that's got to be a huge dynamic in this book. Well, I think we're already seeing the seeds of tension about the fact that Larry's published and Sid doesn't feel like he's published anything which gives them the opportunity to keep on choosing one another and that's the way that they that's the phrase he uses yes yeah that's why i used it yes that they like they are continual we know that throughout the course of the story they do continue to choose each other we see that that's uh in the in the statement in which he makes it he i can't i i don't know where it is right now but he says we keep choosing each other. Mm-hmm. So we know that that is the, still the dynamic at the end. And I'm, and I, I'm very moved by that. One thing that I like about that is that, um, in many ways there could, that commitment that, that continually 
choosing one another. Right. And being given to us at the beginning is a guiding light as you're reading throughout the whole thing. It's like yes. it's the sense of hopefulness that guides you no matter where you're going. So all this foreshadowing <clears throat> or, you know, maybe just whether it's foreshadowing or just kind of a slow reveal of these underlying dynamics that are going to create conflict, that are going to create a, a situation in which we're going to see how they have to do that in the future. I think that's what Angelina, I don't want to speak for you, but that's, I think what we're picking up on, mm-hmm. right? I can tell they're going to have like these things they're going to they're going to come to a head how is that going to play out but we already know that they continue to do it and it's going to come to a head in any number of ways exactly. who knows right? right one of them gets a tenure and the other one doesn't or you know right. one of them's kid excels and the other one's kid doesn't and like who knows hmm. my kid right. walked faster than you kid now the whole principal's <laughs> like you know it, 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 there's there's a, <laughs> There's right. a lot of explosive potential in all of this, but probably equivalent to all the potential for goodness too. Right. And the the things that are likely to cause any kind of, you know, explosion or whatever are pretty universal things, right? There's not like, mm-hmm. these are very human experiences, very human stories that virtually anybody is dealing with. It's not like there's something so you know, some supernatural thing or something that we can't all identify with that. So we can then thus we can identify with the potential for both good and bad to happen. Right. Right. We're constantly all kind of teetering on that. Right. One thing I was going to say is that there's, there's, you know, like for Sally, for Sally and Larry, for example, um, there's not just the, the different friendships, the different relationships, but there's also like the Sally or the Larry that, well, Sid's a good example of it, right? They all have a duality, right? They have the version of themselves that participates right. in the friendship, the corporate friendship. And then there's the version of themselves that participates in their marriage. Right. And then there's the, per- the, the person, the version of themselves that participates in their own inner life. Yep. And there's those things can sometimes be in conflict. Like, I think we probably all know this, right? Like where you have a really good friend or your spouse or whatever it is. And sometimes or maybe you feel this about yourself, right? Like you sometimes feel like you, you come away from some kind of conversation with a group of friends or something. And you're like, wait, was that didn't feel like it was the me that's normal or your spouse say, wow, you're different when you're in that setting. Right. Mm-hmm. And we don't yes. always know every version of our, of our spouse or our friends or ourselves even. And sometimes um, you see a version of yourself. You're not too fond of. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you're like, that is a way better version of myself than the actual version of myself. Right. Well, isn't that, again, I say this as someone who's single, but isn't that one of the ideas behind romantic love is that you're with someone who makes you the best, helps you to be the best version of yourself or helps you in your sanctification process? Right. Mm, Yes. And I suppose friendships would would, would play the same sort of role that we, we want to be in relationships that help us to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. Right. Well, Well, and we... Go ahead. No, you first. We spoke at the same time, so ladies first. <laughs> um, I, I was going to point out that different versions of how you see your best self is the crux of the conflict between Charity and Sid at the end of chapter six. Mm-hmm. She wants him to be a successful professor, and he wants to grow nine bean rows on the Lake Isle of Innisfree and <laughs> write poems. This... They, that's how they see the best version of Sid, two different ways. Now that creates conflict in a marriage. And we're already seeing that. We, so yes. He alludes to that, right? And 
well, I had something else to say, but I'm going to let David finish his thought. Mm, I th- oh, I think I, you were talking about, I think I was just going to say that a friendship and a marriage are in some ways just variations on the same theme. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that's it. Oh, that, it's it. Well, I was going to say that we also see um, duality and charity in chapter six that we had not seen before. The idea that she, the self she presents, I'm not interested in Sid. I came here to run away from him is right. not who she really is. <laughs> Right. And Aunt Emily raises the question via Larry's perception of, is it that she doesn't know that she's taken with this guy? Or is this, so is she naive about who she is? I think it's all part of her master plan. Yeah. Or is this her master plan? I also think it's her master plan, but initially the question is sort of raised like, because Aunt Emily's like, oh, she's just as gone on him as he is on her. And it's said in this kind of like, Maybe she didn't know, but then, but then once we get further into the chapter, yes. And he's like, why did you leave? And she's like, well, you found me. And like, that was very coy. All of that was very like, cause I had the hook in your mouth and I was reeling you in boy. <laughs> right. What's interesting about that, Angelina, you're exactly right. And that scene struck out, stuck out to me strongly because at the beginning of that, you did the little, same thing <laughs> at the beginning of that little anecdote, um, Larry specifically says, I have no idea what they talked about down by the lake. Mm -hmm. And the story that he invents is that coy, manipulative charity. (laughs) Yeah. For all we know, they had a wonderful time picking apples and making out under a tree. Exactly. But the one, he even tells us uh, what I'm about to say, I made up. Mm-hmm. Doesn't he say it's the conversation they should have had? Yes. Something it's like exactly that. what he says. Thank you for remembering that. That to me is very revealing. I'm not hundred percent sure that um, Larry is a huge fan of charity at the point he's writing this. And then that is how she came off to me as well. I, I was not, I, as someone who is not manipulative, in the ways of getting a husband, obviously. Um, <laughs> I don't have many hooks cast at the moment. That's not it how actually does not roll. take that. Uh, so, <laughs> manipulation well, not required. See, this, so you're on the right track. This is what I get for reading all these Jane Austen novels. I'm so confused. Okay. Hey, <laughs> speaking of which, finish your thought because then I want to bring it around to that as we start thinking about Well, I was just so. going to say i i thought charity i personally did not think charity came across looking that great in chapter six i was put off by i was put off by how she just tormented someone who was obviously in love with her and she obviously wants him to but then she also seems to take some pleasure in making him suffer which i did not like that at all i felt so i was like god poor sid run sid run (laughs) and so this is where it's like you know, you wonder from Larry's perspective, like, that's why I ask who do you trust? Like, do, should we, right. Perspective on her, like, is it colored by his, his affection for his, for his very good friend? Right. Um, is it what happens later on? Like there's all these, so he's asking you to anticipate the future, but he's also asking you to, to begin to reflect on the nature of his friendship with Sid. Right. Because if if you don't, if you don't like the way your best friend's spouse or another friend or whatever treated your best friend, then you're going to naturally have some inclination towards a negative way of portraying them if you're right. writing a book about them. So, Right. But then another, another sort of like what is going on moment is, is that that story in chapter six comes right on the heels of Sid basically saying, Cherry and I have some tension. 
and we don't always see eye to eye on things. And then Larry fabricates a story of how this has probably been the dynamic between them since the moment they met. Um, so again, it goes back to his perception, but so, so maybe it's real that charity didn't come out looking too good, or maybe it's just Larry's version of it. But in chapter six, I was not the biggest charity. Like I didn't, I wasn't like, what a delightful love story. <laughs> so, then, so then one of the things that for me comes up is the, is the balance, right? Does he balance that out by like, how does he portray Sid coming up? Is there going to be a Sid that's sort of where we're kind of like looking at Sid and going, eh, what are you doing, dude? And it's a little bit more friendly towards charity because that'll tell huh. us a lot about him. Right. Yes, it's true. Okay, so... And, and, and am I the only one wondering why Sid wants her? I, um, I think we're I, kind of meant to um, both wonder, like, I think I think the point is that she is... Um, dazzling. Dazzling in a way that's dazzling. like sort of mysterious, like in the way that Daisy is... Huh. Gatsby or something. Oh, um, that's interesting. Speaking of which, okay, you mentioned Pratt and Prejudice. I mentioned Gatsby, or you mentioned Jane Austen, I guess. And I was thinking a lot while I was reading this about like echoes to other stories, <clears throat> other characters in literature. So I was wondering if any of these characters remind you of, of other characters in other things that you, other books that you love. Like, do you see any of Elizabeth Bennet in Charity? Or someone like that. I don't know. I'm not the. Oh, I'm going to let Angelina feel this. That's. You go oh, first. Gosh, I want to punt too. Um, David, <laughs> what are you. Um, I, I hadn't been thinking about that as I read, but I was wondering do we see other stories where it's about two couples? I mean, Wuthering Heights is kind of about two couples who are contrasted, but not really in the same way. Right? Yeah, that book's yeah. boring. Um, <laughs> You're kidding, right? <laughs> Which one of these characters is equal? <laughs> if they take a trip to the moors, we know to look out. But, uh, I love that yes. book. Angelina doesn't like it. Every now and then I got to throw out, um, I got to throw out things that no one knows what I actually think of it just to maintain some, you know, some just mystery, everybody some mystery, tagging some whatever. you in yeah, exactly. You're going to be with, constantly like, revealing yourself like Larry Morgan and we'll, we'll find it. <laughs> No, no, David's being secretly, charity here. He's I'm, pulling the street. He's got hooks in everybody's mouth right now. I secretly, I secretly love till we have faces. <laughs> you can't, you well, can't that just now. That's your brand. That's your brand. Yeah, I know. Now. Seriously, seriously, that'd be like Apple stopping to make like iPhones or something. <laughs> <laughs> this just we're gonna it. shift Steve over to Jobs buys Google. Um, anyway, <laughs> we're gonna shift from making like iPhones to actually just having an orchard of apple trees. Um, <laughs> On second thought. <laughs> you know, it's funny you saying pro. that, David, you asking that question, I realize I said this last week and I'll say it again. I'm taking this book very personally. So and I haven't, I'm realizing as you say that I haven't compared it to any other books at all, but I have been thinking about people I know like each of these characters. Hmm. So I, it's, I'm glad you asked that question. I didn't realize that, but I think that's just more evidence of how, I guess, to answer your question earlier, I'm emotionally invested in this book and in this story and in these characters. I care about them. See, I told you the feeling question is good. It is. It's always good. good. <laughs> I'm a counselor. I believe in the feeling question. <laughs> so. I am a I'm, I'm oddly enough, I'm also reading it the same way and thinking about people I know and dynamics and different things like that. 
and um I have struggled. The universality of the situation. Well, but I have struggled to find the universal motifs here. Like, usually it's very easy for me to be like, oh, the brother and sister, we got a Hansel and Gretel theme. Let, you know, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm not, and there's so you, many, but there's so many deliberate literary references to other couples and other stories and mm-hmm. finding yourself in the story that I'm a little bit frustrated that I can't find the story in another story. Do you think that, okay, uh, okay, let me ask this in a way that it's not, it's not meant to be a critique. Do you think it's possible that that is a limitation in the way that you read? Sure, of course it is. I mean, for me, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Angela? Like, if your inclination is to read in a certain way, do you think that there's a limit that that limits the possible ways you could? I mean, I guess it obviously limits them, but do you think that that is a, I don't want to say a flaw, but like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, that it's just not, oh, there's certain things you won't recognize or, or that you'll be, you'll be looking for that may not be there. Um, I don't know. That's not a leading question. I don't have an answer. I'm, I'm just wondering. No, I, well, I think that my answer is I try to let an individual book tell me how to read it. So yeah, I would agree yeah. that it trying to force a framework onto something that won't work is going to be naturally limiting. And there can be any number of frameworks as we see in modern literary criticism, any number of frameworks you could try to force onto a novel that wouldn't work. So, um, I, I feel like this novel is resisting, um, certain types of reading. So I'm not trying to do it at the same right, time. Right, he right. keeps mentioning all these literary couples. Hmm. So I don't yeah. think it's inappropriate to try to figure out what he's saying there. Like sure. if it was, sure, sure. if he lists 15 tragically doomed couples, that's obviously <laughs> a message and I want to receive it. Um, so no, I didn't, when I say I'm struggling to find the universal there, I don't, I don't mean that I'm, tr- I'm, I'm struggling to put a framework on. I'm trying to read the novel that Wallace Stegner wrote and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. It in the way that he, he, he wants, you know, according to the rules of the universe he created. But it's so deliberately literary. There's so many literary references. You know, that's obviously intentional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were saying you were struggling, I think your words were you're struggling to find the universality because there's something about you didn't there were certain archetypes you were looking for i think so well, one, yeah no i know I, I don't I'm, i wouldn't say that i'm struggling to find the universality um but like so you asked the question what other literary characters do i see like, i'm not seeing that i'm i'm not saying oh this yeah. is this type the characters yeah. are not reading as types to me ah uh, okay so okay that's a great way of putting it. okay so they're not mm. types so uh, what is that do can we make can you make an assessment of what that like what that means about this book as literature, like, does that make it, does it, does it, is it transcending type and thus is, um, valuable because it does that or is it avoiding type and thus that's a negative of it? I guess I don't know enough yet to know. I wouldn't say that it's automatically, I, I wouldn't say it's automatically a flaw by any means. I think that the best stories operate both as the type and as the individual, like, you know, none of us want to read, a story where it's just such types, you know, like, Oh, there's the sorority girl. There's the football captain. Like, you know, that's not an right. interesting story. We, we don't want that, but the best stories. Um, so for example, in Jaber Crow, when we, we did that, right. Jaber is a, a masterfully crafted individual human being and he is himself. And yet he is also Dante the wanderer. Right. And he's, yeah. he's going off to find himself cause he's lost in the woods. Um, yeah. and, and Wendell and Berry that- is doing both of those things and it enhances both of the things. Mm. 
And that's, um, and there's the value of the echo though, right? Like, like looking for echoes in other stories. I think that's why the question, do you see this character in other stories? I think is maybe not perfect, but, and not for all situations, but is it certainly valuable? You know, and it could be, it could be that the reason I hadn't thought of that before just now, but it could be the reason that I'm struggling to relate these characters to other characters is I still don't feel like I know them. I think that's probably, yeah. I mean, how do you, yeah, I mean, you can so only, who are they really like? I don't know who they are. Yeah. I have to say that's the opposite of how I feel. And again, just as a feelings question, I feel like I know these, I'm getting to know these characters. I just don't know what's going to happen to them. Hmm. Um, Angelina, you mentioned earlier, you said something that I thought was interesting, but kind of taking it back a little bit, taking, taking a broader view of what we're talking about here. You mentioned specifically that if this book feels well-crafted that you have this sense of craftedness i think it was your words i wrote it down when you said it um and i'm very curious about that 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 idea because i think we talk about that a lot right like it's we talk about there's a sense or a feeling that something is well-crafted and i and like when something what do we mean like what do you mean by that this goes to both of you when we talk about something feeling well-crafted we're talking about like a sense and intuition and instinct and I'd love to unpack what that means a little bit as we conclude here, especially in this book, because when we say that, we're not necessarily saying, well, look at the way he structures this sentence and um, look at the way he does this with character. I mean, we got there eventually, but initially it was, there was this, you was like, uh, you were having a hard time expressing exactly what you meant by that. So you said it feels well-crafted. You both said that actually. So mm-hmm. I'm curious what, what that tells us about the experience of reading and what you mean by that and that kind of thing. Okay. I think is that a fair question? Mean, Do you know what I mean? It's a, that's a very good question. I, I think a lot of times on this, this show, we can say things and our leader readers are scratching their head. Like, what exactly do you mean by that? And we're all just saying it like it's self-evident what, what we mean. I guess it's the jargon of our industry. Right. Um, so I, th- that's a very fair question. I think, I, I think you can mean a lot of different things by that. So I think what I mean is a sense that I feel like the author is in control of the story. Um, so I have, I will use Dickens as an example for this, even though I've taken some, so I've taken some heat in the past for not being the biggest Dickens fan, but I will say this about him. Balderdash. No one should take heat for that. <laughs> He's he maintains control of his narratives. And that's always remarkable because you're talking about, you know, a thousand plus pages, you know, a huge sprawling cast of characters written over a large period of time for a serial, but he keeps control of them. Nobody's spinning off and, and he's chasing after them, trying to, to, to put them back together, right? So sometimes um, if a book is not well-crafted, I think, oh, you just wrote yourself into a corner and now you cannot get out. Yeah, and so you ju- you have now just dropped the thread because there is no, there's no way to go, right? And so I don't feel like Wallace Stegner has written himself into a corner. Like I don't feel like he has created. Okay, so it's about creating tension and then resolving tension, right? That's another way to look at. It. I don't feel like he's going to create this big mass of tension and be like, well. There's no way out of that knot. The end. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I, I think he's going to give us. He's going to create the knots, and, un, and probably it's going to be many because it's, it's a relationship over a long period of time. We're probably going to see a lot of nodding and unnodding, but it will be. He will be in control of that. He won't yeah. have to Alexander the Great it and be like, I, I'm just going <laughs> to slice this right in half because I can't get out of that. Um, and so maybe maybe our, our, our close readers have had that experience too, re- reading something or even watching a movie and you think, ah, I, I, you just put yourself in the corner. You can't get out now. 
Although to be fair, credit to Alexander the Great for being the first person to actually try that. <laughs> uh, Heidi, take a take. What do you think about this? Sure. Well, I'm going to answer this based on a conversation I had a few months ago with the author George Saunders. Oh, yeah. I did an interview with him. 10th of December. And, and oh yeah. I mean, and this Lincoln was, and I'm saying this like very casually, like I do this all the time, but, but it was like a out. highlight of my life. I <laughs> love George Saunders. Uh, and anyway, so he wrote exact, you said, you said the title, a collection of short stories called 10th of December. They're excellent. I, I love this collection of short stories. So what he said about this very issue of, crafting, uh, of, of the feeling of being well-crafted. Uh, he said that when he writes a story and he specifically used the example of the first story in the collection, which is called victory lap, which is the story of a girl who is kidnapped and then rescued by a neighbor boy. Uh, and so there's a lot of potential holes in that story. That sounds right. exciting. So I got to read that it, one again. It's an, it's excellent. It's, it's lovely. And and after I say what I'm going to say, you're going to read it differently than I read it the first time I did. Um, so he said, as he's writing this story, he's thinking there are so many potential holes in this story, but I really want it to work. So how do I make this story work? So he's as he's writing, he's thinking, what are all the criticisms that this story was going to get? They're going to say, why didn't a neighbor look outside and see her? Why didn't she just run away? Uh, how did this, why did it take the boy so long to choose to go rescue the girl? How did the kidnapper get all the way to the woods by the time the boy chooses to go out there and save her? Things like that. So as he's writing the story, he thinks of every potential hole and then works it technically into the story, plans out where he's going to salt to plug that hole in the story. Um, just like you said, Angelina, he specifically used that same phrase you use, which is, I don't want to get backed into a corner in my writing. So as I reread the story after he said it, I noticed how he does it every single time. And, and that I think contributes to the feeling that we have as readers of reading this well-crafted story, has the author thought about all of the problems we're going to have in this story and plugged those holes in mm. some way mm. and made it sound, make it, make it sound good. <laughs> yeah. Making it sound good does help. Yeah. I mean, really it's that that's the technical element of writing. He said, that's the hardest part of writing is to make all of my technical elements actually sound good. Cause all I'm doing is just like, you know, stitching or weaving or whatever it's he said it's it's really quite mechanical everything i'm yeah. doing but i yeah. actually have to make it sound beautiful and i think i have the same feeling as i read wallace stegner is he's he there's things he wants us to know about these characters so it's not surprising when it happens and there's ways he's trying to weave that in there and then make it sound good mm. And I, I think somehow I'm not exactly sure how to connect what I'm thinking about to what you're you're saying, but I maybe we can talk through it and figure out the connection because I feel like there is a connection, and that's so we're talking about a story as crafted, and right. I, and I, this is connected to an idea that I'm really interested in is the idea that literary realism is a narrative construct. Um, in 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 other words, 
we like to talk about, oh, that was a realistic movie, or this is you know, this is a realistic novel. This is how people act in accordance with reality. These people seem human. They're acting and behaving in a way that is within the range of normal human experience, and so it feels real to us. And yet, there is nothing real about a narr- a, a story in the sense that reality is just meandering and wandering and boring and doesn't have an overall narrative structure. And, and so the author is coming in here and he is, he's almost doing a connect the dot picture, but he has to disguise it. Yes. Right. So it's exactly it. It's Mm -hmm. got, it's got to be that tightly constructed, but it can't feel that way to you, the reader. Right. Well, and it goes to what we've talked about many times on this podcast, which is the interweaving of structure and meaning that you can't read it one without the other. You can't read it just as crafted. There's a meaning to it and you can't read it just as meaning or you miss the joy of discovering like, the, the technical elements of writing. And, and that in many ways is what we talked about earlier, even on this podcast today of what we offer to each other. And when we read in community. This conversation could go on a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I thought I lost you there for fruit. a minute. <laughs> grandma fruit. No, no, no. I was just thinking. I was, and, and partly I was thinking, we're going for an hour and 15 minutes. Do I ask another question us for another 15 minutes? Or do I say we probably should wrap this up now? And I'm thinking we probably should wrap this up now. Um, just given the time of day and various other reasons. Um I've been recording like since, <laughs> since sunup. Did I catch a niner in there? <laughs> um, let's just let, let, let me give you guys a chance to each uh, to offer some final thoughts. So I'm overwhelmed by my own eloquence. Can Angelina go first? <laughs> oh man, what? <laughs> She's also overwhelmed by your eloquence. I know. And I didn't mean that. I didn't mean like to not respond to you and tell you you were so eloquent. That was amazing. Keep going. <laughs> The demands, my, the demands of time just became funny. This is my funny story in response to you saying any final thoughts is that I was on the phone last night and the person ended the conversation by saying, is there anything that you would like to say before I hang up? And I thought, oh no, this is the closest <laughs> moment. <And this> <laughs> moment of anxiety. I'm not prepared for my final thoughts. Every <laughs> single time that David says final thoughts, I'm like, no. And then someone else starts talking and then I'm like, wait. <laughs> Now I have final, final thoughts. So um, Fine, I'm hanging up now. This conversation is <laughs> over. Thank you to everyone who's been listening. Thank you for being here on the show. Is there anything else I'd like to say before the guillotine comes down? Something awesome. It's not like your last words ever. That's a little morbid. I would really need to work on that. I would be up all night in the dungeon yeah, that, just like drafting a lot of that different... That would be way too... Ang- there'd be too much anxiety. Right? Seriously, is that it? Uh, I guess my final thought is I am pleasantly surprised that we had this much to talk about two chapters where I feel like I still don't know what's going on in this book, but that's not a flaw. Heidi, I feel like after all these years, the 100 plus episodes we've done, he still doesn't think that I can do my job. (laughs) This is not not me saying you can't do your job. This is me saying I can't do my job. Hey, Angelina, you know that when you were walking along the sand and there were the footsteps and then there's the stretch on the beach where there's no footsteps, that was me carrying you. It was then when David carried you. 
<laughs> that's a safety y'all that's what happens that's really funny imaginary experience i'm having in my head with this image right now so. <laughs> you know when you couldn't ice skate <laughs> Okay, you are skated for real. Those women were pregnant and they should not have been on skates. And I know that our listeners out there are freaking out. Like, I don't even know how I can follow the thread of that chapter because the whole time I'm just like, I like how you're fine with them. I you don't like it when they're ice skating, but you're fine with them drinking a lot of alcohol. Oh, honey, that's just European. I was totally like, this is some sense. Some some 1930s European. Yeah, that's right. They give Guinness beer to pregnant women in Ireland because of all the B vitamins. Like, I'm on board with this, but I know. Word. I haven't. This is the first time I've. I think this is the first time I've ever read this book while my wife has been pregnant. So I was chuckling regularly at a lot of this pregnant activity. <laughs> yeah, I just I'm not I'm not into this ice skating while pregnant. And and then her saying, "Don't worry, you can't hurt the baby because you'll fall on your rump." And I'm like, "No, this is incorrect information." <laughs> I do. Now that, we've, now that Angelina has expressed her final thoughts and anxieties about these characters, what are your final thoughts and anxieties about these characters? Well, I want to do a funny one because otherwise I sound like I'm one-upping, but I actually do have a final thought, which is um, about Sid and his little master plan in chapter six. I thought that was interesting and how he wanted... Um, the way that it was presented is that he didn't tell them he had money until he knew that Charity loved him for himself mm. and i am curious about the veracity of that story and is what that motivated larry, it is that how larry thinks it would have gone yes and is that larry's invention is that true and if so it shows some shrewdness on his part even though he's presented as being this very straightforward and also of course reveals his insecurities but it i mean it de- definitely makes it clear that if that is true charity is not the only one capable of manufacturing a master plan that's true and that was another double that i forgot about exactly. he's the richest guy on campus dressed as the poorest the poorest guy, guy. yep yeah. yep and the fairy tale motif that you talked oh, about about very how much the fairy tale i was thinking about yes. that too i mean the the orphaned prince turns out to be you know, the orphaned beggar, I mean, turns out to be the, well, and the, the real, the true identity to go to Dickens again. Dickens came up twice. The idea of the, the him finding his true identity and, and all of that. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. My final thought is someone should write an essay about what him reading Middlemarch and the idiot means. Right. Well, and I did look up every single one of the references to every single author. I didn't know who Samuel Huffins, is that right? Huffenstein was, I didn't. And, and, and then I wanted to know more about new humanism and all those guys. So I did look up every single one of those guys and learned a lot added to the story. And you can feel free to post about that on Facebook. Well, we are out of time. Yep. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you both for being on, on this episode of close reads. This is fun. You're welcome. All You're welcome, your, David. Thanks for inviting time. us. <laughs> Thank you for carrying me. My feet were hurting so bad. <laughs> well, uh, thank you to everyone who's been listening. Who and you know those of you who are listening are the real people who are carrying us. Um, oh, yeah, that was a to, sweet moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's just move on from it, though. Um, <laughs> thank you to everyone who's been um, supporting the show on Patreon. Uh, We've got some conference talks from this last summer's conference that are now up there. If you didn't know that already, uh, make sure that you have subscribed to the the plays the thing feed. And make sure you're ready to listen to all these different podcasts. 
we are really excited about all this content. So make sure that you um, listen. We love your reviews, your comments, all that kind of stuff are very valuable to us. So we appreciate when you do that. And if you have not done so, please do uh, review Close Reads. And when you listen to the first episode of uh, the King Lear episode on the, the Place of Thing, leave us a comment or a review, a star review on Apple the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you get podcasts and we would be really uh, grateful for that. That's it though. Thank you so much for listening this week for Angelina Sanford for Heidi White. I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening to Close Reads and happy reading. Mm-hmm.